0: Hello. My name is Manu Hegde. I'm a group leader at the MRC Laboratory of Molecular Biology in Cambridge, England. And today, I'm going to talk to you about how protein localization is monitored for errors and failures. Now, this is the second part of a three... Set of a series of three talks. And in the first part, I gave you a history of how the basic principles of protein localization were discovered. So, for example, in a cell, you have many different compartments paroxysomes, mitochondria, ER, and so forth. And what I discussed were the basic principles by which proteins are selectively segregated among these different compartments. And the idea is that as proteins are being synthesized, or shortly after their synthesis, specific sequences within them are recognized, and those sequences are then uh, recognized by machinery that takes them to these different organelles. Now, as nice as this system is, it turns out that the system does fail from time to time. Not only can you have genetic mutations in a protein, for example, in the signal sequence that might cause it to not be translocated properly, but you might even have genetic mutations in the machinery that mediates the targeting to these different organelles. So, how, then, does the cell deal with these failures? And, in fact, this wasn't a problem that was really considered through uh, much of the part of the period when the machinery for targeting and translocation were being deciphered. And so what I'm going to tell you about is really my own personal experience with how we came to realize that protein segregation to organelles might, in fact, be prone to failure at a higher rate than we really appreciate, why we think this is important and what the consequences are, and most importantly, how the cell has evolved mechanisms to deal with errors in protein. Uh, localization so the story begins when i was a graduate student at ucsf and when i was at ucsf i joined a lab the lab of vishulingappa that was interested in how proteins get into the endoplasmic reticulum now the er and a picture of the er in a typical uh, tissue culture cell is shown here is a vast organelle that's distribu- that's distributed throughout the cell and the types of proteins that go into the er are proteins that eventually have to reside on the membrane of the cell surface or various intracellular membranes, or get secreted to the outside of the cell. And so what happens is that those proteins are synthesized by cytosolic ribosomes that are selectively taken to the surface of the ER, where the proteins are either imported across the membrane or inserted into the membrane before being trafficked to other parts of the cell. And so the way this process historically was was studied to try to understand the mechanisms of how these events work is to try to reconstitute some of these events, such as the translocation of a protein across the membrane, in a test tube system. And so the idea is that if you could pull apart the components involved in such a process, you might understand the machinery that makes it work. And so I discussed some of the experiments that led to that, uh, the the basic principles in the first part of the talk. And so this is the kind of experiment that, that we would do in the lab when I was a student. So, what this system contains is a cytosol that contains all the factors needed for protein synthesis. We would add a radioactively labeled amino acid, which which is usually uh, S35-methionine. And if you want to study protein import, you would add a source of ER vesicles, which is usually isolated from pancreas. And you can manipulate these, as well as many other components of the system, to try to dissect the processes. So, of course... The process of protein translocation was historically studied with model proteins that that undergo translocation quite efficiently. And so one such model system that has been extensively studied is the hormone prolactin. And so what happens when you synthesize such such a protein in this in vitro lysate is if you synthesize the protein without any ER membranes, so that's shown all the way on the left over here, you get a product that is termed a precursor. And that's because without any place for that protein to go, it's synthesized and retained in the cytosol, where it still contains its signal peptide. If, however, you have a complete reaction that has all the factors, then the protein successfully gets imported into the ER, where that signal peptide gets removed, and you get a mature form of the protein. So that makes perfect sense. And you can, of course, show that that protein got into the lumen of the ER, because if you digest that sample with protease, then you retain uh, protection of that product. And that's because it's protected inside the lumen of these vesicles. And if you add protease in the presence of some detergent, which is this blank lane over here, then everything is digested. So that looks great. And exactly this system was used to dissect the sequence of events that lead to targeting and translocation of such a protein across the membrane. Now, occasionally, You might want to look at non-model proteins. Now, why would you do that? Well, one of the main reasons you look at other proteins is if they are particularly interesting for other reasons, such as their physiologic uh, importance, or perhaps they're involved in disease. And so when I was in Vishu's lab, one of the labs across the hall was Stan Prusner's lab. And the Prusner lab was very interested in a set of neurodegenerative diseases called prion diseases, And this seemed to be a very fascinating set of diseases somehow revolving around protein misfolding. So, Vishu, at some point, decided to try to look at what happens to prion protein when it is first synthesized. And it was thought to be entering the ER because it eventually goes to the surface of the cell. And so, we wondered, well, how does it normally fold when it first gets made? And one gets a somewhat surprising result. So, here's an experiment in which you synthesize prion protein. And in the first lane, you have the complete reaction. And, of course, as expected, the major product is the mature product, the one that corresponds to the protein that gets across the membrane and has its signal peptide processed. But what you see is that there's a little bit of precursor that's left. So, that was not quite seen with prolactin, which seemed to be a bit more efficient. So, what that really suggested was there was a little bit of inefficiency in which this precursor was retained partially in the cytosol. But the slightly more surprising thing are these faint bands that are seen closer to the bottom of the gel. And these were generated when you treated the sample with protease. And what happens then is some of the protein gets digested to smaller fragments. Now, it took a little bit of detective work to figure out exactly what these fragments were, but they turn out to be transmembrane forms of the protein. So. The reason they generate these fragments is that the cytosolic part of it gets digested by protease here and here, leaving uh, the other parts protected from protease. And because these protected fragments are slightly different size, you get two different bands at the bottom of the gel. So what exactly was going on here? And a little bit more detective work uh, from various experiments that I did demonstrated that what was happening is that there was this region of the protein that was slightly hydrophobic. And so you look at this hydrophobic region, and it's got a bunch of residues that are moderately hydrophobic, like alanine, and some that are more hydrophobic, like leucine or valine. And it turns out that this sequence looks almost like a transmembrane segment. And so what seemed to be happening is that when you make it in this in vitro system, the components in that system seem to fail to recognize that this protein should be translocated across the membrane, and a small amount of it gets inserted into the bilayer. And so, at this point, um, these were just the initial experiments I did when I was first starting in the lab, and I thought that it would be extremely interesting to figure out how it is that these forms get generated, because it seemed very interesting. It was different than the model protein prolactin, and I wanted to not only figure out the sequence of events that led to these, these transmembrane forms, But to identify factors that were involved in making them. So, this is what I proposed to do for my PhD. And when I then went and proposed this to my qualifying exam committee, they thought it was a terrible idea. And of course, they had a point. Because after all, these forms had only been been seen in this in vitro reaction. The in vitro reaction, from a certain perspective, seems very strange, because it's made of, of a lysate from reticulocytes, membranes that come from pancreas. Whereas the prion protein is primarily expressed in neurons. And so it was, it was deemed that these were almost certainly artifacts. And I then failed my qualifying exams. So what was I to do? Well, the concern was that this was really irrelevant to anything biologically significant. So, of course, I wanted to really see if that was the case or not. And so the experiment then was, since we knew what it was that caused this to be made in a transmembrane form, we could take that region of the protein and increase the hydrophobicity of some of the amino acids. For example, this alanine change to a valine. And then, to see if these forms were important at all, you could determine if these changes, which in an in vitro system led to a little bit more of this transmembrane form, had any consequence when you expressed it in transgenic mice. And so we worked with the Prisoner lab, which had great mouse facilities, to express these in mice and see what happens. And, of course, during the few years that it took to wait for those mice to be made and and wait to see if they had any phenotype, I then went back to the lab and learned biochemistry and actually did some work to try to figure out how these forms are being made. So, the result was striking. First of all, wild-type mice, or mice that don't have prion protein at all, live a reasonably long life. They live about uh, two to three years. But when you express these mutations, for example, this alanine to valine mutation or this asparagine to isoleucine mutation, the mice got neurodegeneration and died at earlier and earlier ages. And the length of time they lived corresponded inversely to the amount of this transmembrane form that was being generated based on our in vitro studies. And if you looked in the brains of these mice, it appeared that they were developing this type of spongiform neurodegeneration that had been seen in certain patients with very similar mutations. And so what we can conclude from these studies is that the cell apparently, or the brain, tolerates a little bit of this transmembrane form. And when we did careful measurements, we could detect a couple percent made in this particular transmembrane form. But mutations that result in a little bit more, for example, instead of 2%, 5%, is sufficient to cause neurodegeneration. And that was true not only in mice, but it turned out that in that central hydrophobic region, there were a number of families that had mutations that were very similar to the artificial ones we had made, in which residues, such as alanine or glycine, were changed to more hydrophobic residues. So, it appeared, in fact, that mislocalizing a protein into the membrane when it was not supposed to be in the membrane can be detrimental. And that then made us quite a bit more interested in how this form was actually generated. So, of course, I then left the lab and started my own lab. And... In the beginning parts of what... Of, of, of our studies, we then tried to investigate how this transmembrane form here gets generated when you start with a protein that's just being synthesized. So, we wanted to fill in this gap between when you start synthesis and how you get this transmembrane form. And so Soo Jung Kim, who was the first postdoc to join my lab, took on this project. And what Su found was that after you initially start making your protein, that signal peptide that's on the prion protein gets recognized by the signal recognition particle, SRP. And SRP has a receptor at the, surf, at the surface of the ER called SRP receptor. And then that protein gets transferred to the translocation channel. So to this point, everything looks exactly the same as it does for any model protein. And this is what happens to pretty much all proteins that are supposed to be imported into lumen. And in fact, the next step would be that the signal would engage the Sec61 channel, open that channel, and the protein would go across the membrane. So what was happening here? It turned out that when we looked carefully, the interaction between the signal and the translocon was a bit more dynamic than, for example, the model protein prolactin. And so about 10 to 20% of the time, the signal peptide wouldn't engage quite properly. And then, because all of these events here are occurring co-translationally, the protein continues to be synthesized, and this hydrophobic region, which is in red, gets synthesized and starts coming out of the ribosome. And when that happens, now you have a hydrophobic region that looks a little bit like a transmembrane segment right next to the translocation channel, which is designed to recognize transmembrane segments. So, a small amount of the time, that transmembrane-like region inserts in the membrane via sec 61 The rest of the time, these failed products are just released into the cytosol, and that cytosolic product is degraded. And so this provided, then, a sequence of events for how you could generate this transmembrane form. But, of course, it was a bit puzzling, because why would you have a protein whose signal peptide was not ideally efficient, like the prolactin signal was? And what was even more puzzling is when we looked at The signal peptide of prion protein from different species, for example, bovine or mice, rats, humans, they were always slightly inefficient to about the same degree. And so it was unclear why this should be the case. And we suspected that maybe there were certain conditions in which having this type of a signal was beneficial. And so Sang Wuk-Kang, in the lab, uh, decided to investigate this. And what Sang found, and he was working with Nina Rane, another postdoc in the lab, is that this dynamic interaction is, under normal conditions, resulting in about 80 to 90% of the protein entering the ER and a little bit released to the cytosol. But under acute ER stress conditions, and what ER stress is, is when the folding capacity of the lumen of the ER is compromised, then the situation was different. And now a much higher proportion of the protein was rejected and less of it gets into the lumen of this stressed ER. And it turns out that this is beneficial for the cell. And the way we know this is because if you replace the signal peptide of prion protein with a much more efficient signal peptide, then the protein is forced to go into the ER. And under conditions of acute ER stress, winds up aggregating in the lumen of the ER. And that turns out to be detrimental. So, this provided a reasonably satisfactory explanation for at least one situation where having this type of a signal is beneficial. And, of course proteins like prolactin are constitutively translocated, even under conditions of ER stress. So, what then happens when you have chronic mistranslocation? And the reason we were interested in this is because we showed that under ER stress, about 50% of the protein gets rejected. And it's been observed that under various disease conditions, Uh, cells experience various types of stress, including ER stress. And so we wondered whether chronic mistranslocation, that is chronic failure to import about half the protein, has any consequences. And what Nina Rane found when she made a transgenic mouse that expresses a version of prion protein with a partially inefficient signal peptide is that that mouse, although it lives a roughly normal lifespan, develops neurodegeneration over time. And so you can see, I hope, that this mouse is a bit ataxic, meaning it doesn't quite uh, have proper balance and and wobbles a bit. Uh, It has this hunched back, and it doesn't groom properly. And it has various signs of neurodegeneration. And so what we can conclude is that just like this transmembrane form, where a little bit is tolerated but a slight excess is not tolerated, the same thing holds for this cytosolic form. If everything is normal, it's reasonably well tolerated. a higher amount may be tolerated for short periods of time, for example, during acute ER stress, but over long periods, this also is not tolerated. And this, these are effects that you see in an intact organism over long periods of time. So in a cultured cell, these effects are very subtle if, and so are very hard to detect if detectable at all. And so what this suggested then is that uh, these uh, forms are... Um, mislocalized, and these mislocalized forms of the protein are somehow detrimental. Now, this is where having some understanding of how these forms are generated is useful. Because what we knew was that both this transmembrane form and this cytosolic form completely rely on having a signal peptide that is slightly inefficient in the way it engages the Sec61 translocon. And that makes a very specific prediction, which is that both of these forms should be avoidable if you increase the efficiency of the signal peptide at this earlier step. And so what that means is that you should be able to take a mutation that normally would generate higher amounts of this transmembrane form and cause disease and rescue it by changing the signal peptide. And we already knew that some signal peptides, like prolactin, are much more efficient. And in fact, we had confirmed in vitro that if you put the prolactin signal onto prion protein, you could reduce generation of these forms of PRP. So, Nina did that experiment, and the result was remarkable, because it basically showed that, in fact, in vivo, in a mouse, the prion protein signal must be slightly inefficient. And so what you can see here is here's a mouse with this alanine to valine mutation. And and that's the one that's basically just sitting here, not doing much. And a matched mouse, in which it still has that mutation, but now has a more efficient signal. And that mouse turns out to be much healthier. It lives a bit longer and uh, doesn't develop neurodegeneration, whereas this alanine to valine mouse over here develops neurodegeneration. And we were able to get this type of a rescue with two different efficient signal peptides and with two different disease-causing mutations. So, we were quite certain that under normal conditions, prion protein, in fact, must have a slightly inefficient signal peptide, even in an intact living animal. And that really put to rest this notion that inefficiencies in the signal peptide or these uh, minor aberrant forms were just artifacts of an in vitro system. And so, what we learned from all of these experiments is that, in fact, errors during biosynthesis seem to be pervasive, because many of these things that I told you about apply not only to prion protein signal peptide, but also to other signals, and that subtle excesses in these errors can lead to disease over time. And in fact, if you look in the human population, there are rare diseases in which signal peptides of other types of proteins are mutated, and those often cause a dominant disease in the tissue where that protein is expressed. So as an example, um, there are mutations in the signal peptide of insulin, and those people develop uh, failure of the the cells that, that that are producing insulin, the beta cells of the pancreas. And so it suggests that failures in localization to the correct compartment lead to synthesis of proteins which, when they're mislocalized, can be detrimental over long periods of time. And so that then really raised the question of, how does the cell normally get rid of these products? And this is something that then we became much more interested in, having realized what the physiologic significance of these failures are, and knowing that even under normal conditions, there's always some products that fail. So how do we approach this problem? And here we again turn to a biochemical system because what we asked was, does this process of failure and degradation work in a test tube? Because if it does, then we might be able to pick apart the components that are in this test tube to try to identify factors involved in it. And it turns out that the degradation doesn't work in our usual in vitro translation system. But what you see is that if you synthesize in this experiment, Um, prion protein without ER vesicles, so that all of it is made in this mislocalized form. You generate this precursor, which is not degraded, but that then does give you these extra bands. In the complete reaction, um, the protein is imported into the lumen of the ER, where it gets glycosylated, and the signal peptide gets removed. So what are these extra bands? And these extra bands turn out to be attachment of a small protein called ubiquitin, shown here in red, to the prion protein. And that was significant because even though our protein was not getting degraded, it was getting marked with this ubiquitin, which is a very well-known tag for degradation of proteins in the cytosol. So, proteins that are polyubiquitinated in this particular way are targeted to the proteasome, which is a major degradation machinery in the cytosol, for degradation. So, we reasoned that Even though degradation is not occurring, the part that we're really interested in, which is recognition of this as an aberrant product that needs to be marked for degradation, that step was occurring reasonably well in this in vitro system. So we could then ask, what is it that's recognizing these products to mark them with ubiquitin? So how can we do this? And what we imagined is that there should be some recognition factor that identifies this. And one of the features of this that we realized early on that was being recognized is the uncleaved signal peptide. And so we look for factors that might recognize this product that still contains an uncleaved signal peptide. And there are lots of ways to do this, because we know that our protein here is radioactive. And so we can then, for example, see what the native molecular weight of our protein is because we know that the protein itself is a certain molecular weight, but if it behaves as if it's bigger, that suggests it might be associated with some recognition factor. And if that's the case, then you can try to make uh, guesses as to what that might be, either by identifying it directly or by knowing some properties about it. For example, the molecular weight of the, the recognition factor. And the way we can do this is you can take such a sample and you can treat it with a cross-linker. And a cross-linker will chemically link these two proteins together because they're very close to each other. So, it does so via reacting with certain uh, uh, amino acid side chains. So, in this particular experiment, here's our translation product before crosslinking, where almost all of it is here at the bottom of the gel. And then after crosslinking, you can see that it's diminished and some of it has shifted to these different sizes... And what we knew was that the factor we were looking for was likely to be a very large factor, because the activity for attaching ubiquitin to our protein was a large factor. And so we focused then on this particularly large cross-linked product and identified what it was. And that product turns out to be a protein called BAG6. And BAG6, it turns out, is itself part of a three-protein complex... And its function really wasn't very well understood. But what we could show was that BAG6 recognizes these hydrophobic sequences. And in fact, it recognizes many unrelated mislocalized proteins. And the way it seems to do so is it recognizes the parts of the protein that should have been recognized by a different factor, in this case, for example, SRP. And so the idea then is that under normal conditions, as a protein is being synthesized, it will be recognized by SRP on the ribosome, taken to the membrane, and recognized there by Sec61, and then imported. And because these events both occur on the ribosome itself, and SRP and Sec61 bind to the ribosome, that, I think, explains why BAG6 doesn't interfere with these processes. In essence, while translation is occurring, BAG6 really doesn't have access to these proteins. other proteins also, many of them, are also made cotranslationally. And it seems that these, these segments of the protein, these very hydrophobic regions, uh, during biosynthesis are either shielded by factors, and after biosynthesis are shielded inside the membrane. And those are the sequences that BAG-6 recognizes. So it seems that that's how BAG-6 knows that a protein is mislocalized because a region of the protein that should be shielded is now exposed. And so the idea, then, is that under normal conditions, the biosynthetic machinery, SRP and Sec61, have priority. And that's because they're associated with the ribosome. And BAG6 doesn't seem to interfere with that process. But when targeting fails, BAG6 then specifically recognizes these exposed signals and transmembrane segments. and it does a few things. First of all, it keeps these substrates shielded. And that's important because these hydrophobic sequences can make a lot of promiscuous and nonspecific interactions, and they can also aggregate. So having something that shields them is quite important to prevent aggregation. And it recruits a ubiquitin ligase. And this is a type of enzyme that attaches ubiquitin to our substrate here, which is the the red bit here. And that would target the substrate for degradation. So, BAG6, then, is a factor that identifies mislocalized proteins and targets them for degradation. Now, the situation isn't quite that simple, because it turns out that in addition to this co-translational pathway, there are other pathways that work after the protein is synthesized. And certain types of proteins, such as tail-anchored membrane proteins, are targeted post-translationally. So, I won't go into it, but it turns out that the machinery... For targeting these tail-anchored proteins also gets to have priority before BAG6 acts. And so in both cases, BAG6 seems to be a factor that waits until you get a chance to target properly to the right place, but is waiting to catch you if you fail, and therefore mark you for degradation. And so if you want to understand more details of exactly how this decision-making works in this more complicated post-translational pathway, um, you can read the reference that's cited here at the bottom. So, ultimately, then, we find that targeting to the ER is prone to occasional failures. And the cell seems to have evolved a mechanism to deal with those failures by having evolved a specific factor that recognizes these mislocalized proteins and targets them for degradation. And this discovery really inspired us to then look for other types of failures. For example, proteins also go to mitochondria. And when we looked, Eske, it Itakura in the lab found a set of factors called ubiquilins that seem to recognize uh, membrane proteins destined for mitochondria and targets them for degradation. And similarly, proteins also have to go to other organelles, for example, the nucleus. So all ribosomal proteins first are synthesized in the cytosol and go to the nucleus, um, where they're assembled into ribosomes. And if that import fails... Um, Koda gatina has identified a, a factor that seems to recognize these mislocalized ribosomal proteins and targets them for degradation. And so the idea here is that the cell has evolved an entire set of factors that deals with different types of failures in getting proteins to the right part of the cell. And so it's apparent that um, both under normal conditions as well as certain pathologic conditions, failure to get proteins to the right compartment is a problem that the cell needs to deal with. Not only that, but these factors themselves may become impaired during disease. So for example, the ubiquilins might be a particularly important example, because there are genetic mutations in ubiquilins that are found in certain rare instances of uh, neurodegenerative disease. In addition, certain other cases of neurodegeneration seem to deplete ubiquilins from cells. So, in this example, which is an experiment done by Esther Zavadsky in my lab, um, she expressed a mutant protein from the protein Huntington. And this is a protein which, when mutated in a certain way, causes Huntington's disease. And what you can see is that the mutant Huntington, which is red, Um, winds up sequestering almost all of the ubiquilin in these two cells here. And so the ubiquilin, then, is no longer available in its normal part of the cell, which is typically to be diffused throughout the cell, where it's monitoring that cell for failures in mitochondrial targeting. And sure enough, if you look specifically in these cells that contain the aggregates, the ubiquilin in those cells is deficient in serving its normal function. And so what we think, then, is that... Um, the lack of this important quality control and housekeeping function might be a contributing factor to why cells that have certain kinds of aggregates are prone to death and prone to um, eventual uh, dysfunction. So, what I then want to leave you with is that the process of protein localization to different organelles, while quite sophisticated in the machinery that carries out these, these events, is nevertheless prone to failure. And those failures might be exaggerated during, for example, certain conditions like ER stress or mitochondrial stress. Um, It's a normal housekeeping function for the cell to have evolved ways of dealing with failures in this localization. So, what are the challenges here? And I think many of these factors have only just been discovered. And I think that it's very unlikely we know all of the factors that deal with failures in different types of localization. So it's quite important to get a complete parts list of all the factors involved. The second thing is that even though we've roughly matched up proteins that go to the ER with BAG6 or proteins that fail to go to mitochondria with ubiquilins, I think that we have a rather poor overall understanding of which quality control pathways are for which clients. And related to that, I think we have a very poor idea of how recognition actually occurs. And so we have a rough idea with BAG-6 that it recognizes hydrophobic regions. um, But overall, the details of that recognition are unclear. And finally, as I told you at the end, we think that many of these pathways may be impaired in disease. And it's a major goal to try to understand exactly how they're impaired and whether anything can be done to either increase their efficacy or otherwise manipulate the process in order to at least have some impact on these diseases. So let me end by pointing out that uh, I've had the pleasure of working with a really great uh, group of people over the past 17 years or so. Some of them are shown here. And uh, I've tried to uh, name the individuals that have carried out some of the key experiments as I've gone through the talk. Um, The current group uh, in this picture that was taken last summer. Uh, is shown here. Thank you for listening.